is Your Own Voice, the podcast about gender experience and perspective. I'm Amy Breslow. Each week, I invite a different guest to share their personal experiences regarding gender and gender issues. When I use the word gender, I mean the range of social roles, personality traits, attitudes, behaviors, values, and relative power that society assigns to females, males, and other individuals. Gender is an identity that is learned. How we define gender changes over time and can vary within and across cultures. This podcast is recorded at my kitchen table and may contain sounds of life from my home and neighborhood in Washington, D.C. Episode 31, Timestamp, Part 1. Hi, everyone. I'm really pleased to share this episode with you. I've talked to nearly 25 women about their experiences being a working mother during the pandemic. And while I couldn't include every voice in the episode, they all informed my thinking and contributed to this piece. What I came to understand is that right now, the most valuable thing I can do is simply to record this moment in time. The world that we knew is gone and nobody knows what things will look like moving forward. I think there's great value in taking a snapshot of this moment in time and hearing people's experiences and perspectives as we all navigate this new world. Lastly, I'd like to share that I've made a decision to bring the Your Own Voice podcast to an end, and that this is the second to last episode of The Run. I'm creating a new podcast that better reflects the time in which we're currently living. It's called Timestamp, and I plan to launch this July. But for now, I will turn it over to the many hardworking women who have been navigating being a working mother under lockdown. Tracy identifies as a black female and uses she, her pronouns. Tracy has a 13-year-old and a 15-year-old and is currently working from home, which she shares with her mom and her husband. Grateful, honestly, to be in my home. I've got my two boys. They're 15 and 13, the oldest of which, of whom is on the um, autism spectrum. Um, my mom lives with us and my husband as well. So there are five of us in the home. I am doing telemedicine at the moment, um, and my practice has probably decreased 50%. I actually enjoy a lot of quarantine. Like I find that I enjoy not commuting. I enjoy not rushing to work. I enjoy the time with my family. Certainly it's uh, put our regular pace in perspective. That slowness that we've never had as a family before has been awesome in many ways. I do think it comes with an anxiety about viruses and and things of that nature. And you have to deal with that um, when you have to make basic decisions like groceries or, you know, getting the kids outside to play or whatever it is. But on the whole, if I had to look at it as a balance, I would say the positive outweighs the negative. So if I have worked a long day um, and then I have to turn around and learn a math concept I haven't seen since seventh grade, then that is the, that's the challenge is because by then I'm out of gas. My other son, his class also does uh, Zoom meetings. He's on the autism waiver that the state of Maryland has, and he has a technician that comes, and they are actually considered essential personnel by the state of Maryland. 
the good news with her is we, she pretty much just comes to us. So she, her family's quarantined and then our family's quarantined. And so far we've all been healthy. So because it's such an integral part of his day and he enjoys her so much, it's like a calculated risk, I'd say. But it seemed it's been going well. So I, I honestly don't have um, any complaints and honestly concerns. She's just pretty much part of the family. You know, they said we're going to end up in social pods where, you know, each other's exposures and be exposed to just those few people. She would be part of our pod. I can see how that's where we're going to evolve. There'll be certain people you, you trust. So my um, son has, we have two cousins his age or around his age and their family too. You know, I talked to their mom. We, they, they've been quarantined um, except for going to the store just like us. My son will go over there and play basketball, spend the night, like regular kid things. And honestly, it's gone fine. They now are part of our pod. But he was getting so uh, cooped up in here that it, it was worth the, the risk. And I knew that they were healthy and had been healthy. You do end up kind of, you know, branching out and testing the waters. We haven't been um, aggressive about it. Uh, it's been more just taking it in. My personal opinion is if we give up all the time that we've spent in quarantine, we might as well have never quarantined, right? Like if this, we're just not there yet. Um, this is, it's just too virulent. I honestly cannot picture us going back to the way things were for some time. Certainly at the present moment, the virus doesn't show that it's letting up at all. So how do, how do you go to a movie? How do you go to a crowded restaurant or bar um, with, with a gas mask on? I mean, it just doesn't work. So I imagine we'll start creating, again, our own pods and our own little home havens that, you know, if instead of going to movies, you just create your own scenario in your living room or learn, get better at cooking. I mean, it just calls for us, to, whether it's in your career or your home, to pivot and to figure out how you make it work, and to try and find the positives. I honestly think that's the only way you make it in terms of this change, because the body and the mind don't like change. So if you throw, it's like a curve, we've been hit by a curveball. So you have to kind of find um, the good in it. Otherwise, it's, you'll drown. Jenna identifies as a Jewish woman and a parent and uses she, her pronouns. Jenna has a 10-year-old and a 13-year-old, and she and her husband are both working from home. You know, it's really important that in all of this that we not engage in this kind of suffering Olympiad about kind of who has it hardest as a parent, uh, because certainly it is, it's physically, it's so exhausting to have young children. And I wake up every day and uh, am grateful that my kids are older. I think it's just uniquely demanding to have toddlers in this moment. But I think a lot less is said about what it means to parent older children during this time. You know, for example, our 13-year-old, you know, we have internet controls on her browser. We'd blocked pornography and multiplayer games and all of these other things that, I, you know, I guess you're supposed to do as a parent in 2020. Um, but we hadn't thought to block the New York Times and discovered that she was going to bed very late because she'd been reading articles about death counts and how the curve wasn't being flattened and how there were field hospitals being set up in Central Park. And so 
you know, she was taking in all of this information, really intense information that I think is overwhelming us as adults uh, and trying to process it as a, as a 13 year old. And so we've just had a, a lot of really deep conversations and um, we've enrolled her in a meditation class and tried to increase her accessibility to other tools to think about healthy ways to move through this moment in time that I think are just, you know, issues that younger kids don't confront in the same ways. And, you know, you asked me about how I identify. And I think if you were to ask uh, a teenager, they would talk about, you know, the central markers of their identity as being a friend and a student. And, and both of those have been radically transformed in this environment. And it's really stressful and anxiety producing. And so I think for all the stress and anxiety that adults experience as a part of this, teenagers see that, they understand the enormity of this crisis, but the tools that they have to address those big feelings and their own resilience uh, is not as fully developed. And so I think it can be a really intense time for these kids, though I think it's also created you know, in in a strange way, it's removed a lot of the the noise from our lives, sports practices and carpools and rushing and other things. And, you know, I, I definitely wouldn't have spent this much time with my kids. Otherwise, the, the last time I spent this much, much time with any of my kids was when I was on maternity leave. And that was a long, long time ago. And in, in a way, this is like a maternity leave. It's It has moments of real joy. Um, and triumph and connection and intimacy with our family, but it is also filled with frustration and exhaustion and a lot of uncertainty. This is a hard time for so many, and I, I think it's an especially complicated time for women. Uh, and I hope that folks are gentle with themselves and recognize that this is not the moment for a Pinterest perfect homeschool environment and that we all give ourselves some space to grieve in this moment, uh, to care for ourselves so that we can care effectively for others and to really use this as a moment for reflection about what is needed to make the world better uh, as we come out on the other side of this, because I, I see so many friends talk about how they're failing in this moment. And I, I think we just need to redefine what success looks like. And so I, I hope everybody is gentle with themselves and with others. Um, this is a time for a lot of solidarity. Cecilia identifies as a mother and a Hispanic American and uses she, her pronouns. Cecilia has a four-year-old and a seven-year-old and she and her husband are both working from home during this time. So something that particularly, you know, struck me that really for me was heartbreaking and for my husband as well was I had told our daughter that, you know, daddy and I are going to be her new teachers and that, you know, she's going to be home with us and she's not going to be in preschool anymore. And she's four and she loves her preschool. It's a wonderful preschool. Didn't think anything else of it, you know, and that next week and a half, you know, after the quarantine, my husband and I struggled with our work to adjust to both being home, um, to adjust with our older daughter who has a full curriculum, who's in first grade. Our younger daughter, our four-year-old was sort of an afterthought and it all came crashing down about a week and a half later when I was putting her to bed and she said, well, mommy, I thought you were going to be my teacher. 
And I said, well, of course, yes, I'm going to be your teacher. And she said, well, you haven't taught me anything. That broke my heart. I realized that I had been neglecting her for a week and a half. I've just been, you know, giving her the tablet. I've been sitting here in front of the TV, having her play with Play-Doh, but I hadn't given her instructions. I hadn't given her lessons. And she loves her school. She loves learning about letters. She loves letter of the week. It broke my heart. It broke my husband's heart. <laughs> that same night we signed up for a, uh, a, for a curriculum online. I mean, that, I mean, literally I put her to bed, went to our room, told my husband and within 20 minutes we're spending, you know, a hundred dollars on this program because <laughs> we were just, you know, just flabbergasted and disappointed in ourselves that, you know, we hadn't even really given good thought to keeping our little daughter engaged. It was really heartbreaking and eye-opening. You know, these new opportunities that we've seen, you know, spending more time together as a family has really been lovely. And I have to say, I say that from a place of privilege. You know, both my husband and I are able to work from home. We are able, able to still pay our daughter's private school tuition. We're still able to, you know, financially we're okay, at least for now. And, you know, I am very aware that not everybody's in the situation and is able to even reflect on these kind of opportunities. Um, I know others definitely are struggling financially, and I, and I am very aware of that. And that's something that I think about a lot, um, how this situation has really uh, heightened, I guess, the class divide. Being a mom can be very isolating. So a lot of us, you know, gravitate towards Facebook groups because it's the only way you can communicate with others and share ideas and get guidance from others in the same situation. And what, about, what I have observed since this quarantine is this stark divide um, between those who are 100% behind the quarantine and in no way want to break the rules. You know, God forbid you mention that you still have lawn service, because if you do, you know, some people will just rip you apart and say, that's not essential. You know, you're not abiding. So then you have the other side that, you know, I've observed of women saying, look, my husband hasn't been working in a month and a half. He's the manager of so-and-so restaurant and we can put food on the table and we still haven't received our unemployment checks. And, you know, I was on the phone for three hours and it's been eye-opening for me because I've seen full threads of mothers um, trying to support each other, trying to find a way to get around these long holds. And I'm hearing comments of three hours and I'm not here to criticize leadership. I'm not here to criticize you know, government officials in this situation. I'm just saying it's just a fact that this is what's happening and what I'm observing. And I'm seeing some say like, you know, as soon as they can, they're sending their kids, you know, back to preschool or back to camps and others are saying, absolutely not. Like, you know, this is still too soon. Even if the government lifts the restrictions, no way is our kid going to camp. And so you see these divides and it's, it's, it's interesting because you see where people are coming from. And I recognize that I come from a place of privilege that I could make that decision just to be at home, work from home and keep my kids home. Yes, it's a challenge, but I have that. Whereas others who have hourly jobs and have to go to get paid, they have no choice but take their, to take their kids elsewhere. They have no choice. And some have openly said that they're looking for people right now, even because of the restrictions, that they're just desperate, that they just have no choice. They have to go to get paid. And so this this discussion, these threads that I see is, is really eye-opening um, among moms. Generally, it's a very supportive group. It's a lovely group. But I think this quarantine has really made it, uh, has shown the stark divide. And I think it's really heightened the divide more than ever. 
Jolana identifies as a mother, a daughter, a teacher, and a friend, and uses she, her pronouns. Jolana is a single mother of an eight-year-old and also lives with her 70-something mother. She teaches special education remotely during this time. I definitely look at it like a balancing act, like a big uh, seesaw. <laughs> and some days I'm down, some days I'm up. Some days I think I have it all figured out and then I'm like, oh no, I missed this or I missed that. It seems like there's always a deadline on my son's part and there's always a deadline on, you know, my part, on the classes that I, I have to attend to. Uh, we have meetings that we have to do online too with the schools, uh, you know, staff meetings, department meetings, team meetings. So that part, it just seems that it, it doesn't stop. And um, it's just like, I'm, I'm always juggling things. I think what has helped me is that I don't really think about it at all, <laughs> or I don't think about it overly. I think if you sit down and you really like, you, you know, you mull over it over and over again, then you just drive yourself crazy. I think what, for me, what has helped is that I have been teaching and I've always had difficult populations of students to work with. I've always had students that, you know, had a lot of high needs even before I was actually became an official special education teacher it wasn't always learning needs. A lot of them had social emotional issues. So me being able to plug into students' needs and helping them, I believe is what has really helped me during this time with my son. Not that he's a special needs child or that he has learning needs, but it's just a certain level of patience that's needed, if you will, uh, for dealing with a young child and then making sure that you know, he's engaged enough with school and that he's able to get outside and play and get fresh air. So it's, it's a lot of different things, but I, I definitely agree it's being present in the moments or being as present as I can and just reflecting and being thankful for what I do have versus what I don't have during this time. I just would say overall, it's just getting to watch my son just grow and, and just be present with him. I, I realized a lot of times it was like we were two ships passing in the day and the night. I would get up early, you know, he would still be asleep, I'd be leaving. And then by the time I would pick him up from school, it would just be like, come on, let's go. Let's, you know, let's go home and let's get ready for the next day. It wasn't like I could really spend time with him and see him. And I, I, I think that's such a gift and one of the biggest takeaways, like when this time is over, I got to spend like, I'm gonna spend like six months with him, just seeing him grow. And I just think that's amazing. I don't know if we were taking care of, of each other like we should have or we could have. And I, I definitely know just so I'm, for my own self, I wasn't taking care of my own self. I was neglecting myself. I was just like moving, moving all the time on a wagon wheel. But I realized I wasn't accomplishing much, if that makes sense. I was just, I was just moving, 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 but it, it didn't seem like I was doing anything meaningful. And now it feels like the first time in a long time where I can just really sit back and reflect on things and really build relationships in a more meaningful way.
Anandi identifies as an American of Sri Lankan Tamil origin, a person of color, and an unapologetic feminist, and uses she, her pronouns. Anandi is an American expat living in South Africa and has a big blended family with children stateside and abroad. She and her husband also have taken in friends and domestic help to live with them during this time. I feel like one of the luckiest people I have in my life is um, my helper, who's a housekeeper who lives in with us um, Monday to Friday or Saturday sometimes. And during this lockdown, as soon as you know it started, she looked at me and she said, you know, I think it's going to be safer if I stay here because here in South Africa, for many you know, staff like her, the taxi system is like little minibuses and they're usually packed with people and even the lines to get them are packed. So from a safety point of view, you know, the idea of having coronavirus out there and her having to travel like that, we just, you know, we didn't even want to consider it. Um, and then the other aspect was, you know, if she stayed in with us, you know, I would do, you know, all the grocery shopping, all the medication, everything. So that there's only one person in our family household, including her of eight, you know, going out. Um, and also just, you know, in our neighborhood, it's easier to, for it not to be overcrowded. So in the U.S., I think had a different challenge of people stockpiling everything. And in South Africa, nobody's stockpiling anything. We, we could actually export toilet paper to the U.S. because there's plenty of it. Because people buy daily sometimes here, depending on their income or, or maximum for a couple of days or a week. And so, you know, in especially in the crowded areas where she lives, you know, the stores are really packed. And so, you know, we made the decision for us to stay in with her. And then, you know, we wanted to make sure her daughter was safe also. So her daughter and niece, you know, came to live with us. So that's, you know three women extra in the household. And, you know, it's interesting when you think about like, okay, you need to get groceries for your family and everything else. And when you think about somebody who comes from a very different culture, a very different eating habits, everything else, you know, I really had to learn everything that they needed. Really happy with the decision works well, but we also, you have to blur the lines more. So instead of, you know, usually she's mostly to herself, Sunday we decided, okay, so let's have two families together for a, a big dinner that we cook together and do a game day and, you know, try to get through these eight weeks with more community, even with um, people who work with us. It's a rewarding relationship. It's wonderful. And she is the best support to me as a working parent. Um, and also we want to be there for her during this crisis just as much as she is for us. One thing I've noticed um, during this pandemic, and I've seen a lot of press about it, undue amount of homeschooling, parenting, crisis management falling on women during this crisis. Um, and when it first started within my professional women's groups and even my social groups, you know, there were a lot of uh, moms complaining about their husbands. Even for myself, my husband and I definitely had a moment like two weeks or three weeks into it, you know, where we sort of had to sit down and like figure out what was happening in our dynamic. But when it came to this crisis, suddenly I definitely myself personally felt like, oh, I'm organizing all the dinners, I'm organizing the healthcare, I'm organizing this, you know, we have eight people here, you know, like thinking forward to the menus for the next seven days. And as soon as it hit, like he kind of retreated to his home office and I was really frustrated. And it was really interesting how people respond to trauma and stress and that some people re respond to trauma and stress by over-functioning. 
and I can raise my hand high and say I, I'm trying to be a recovering overfunctioner. Um, but I think a lot of women, and especially a lot of working moms or working parents who are used to multitasking, used to sort of managing big projects and big teams at work, you know, we kick into overdrive. Like, how do we manage this? How do we get ahead of the game? How do we make sure everything's taken care of? And then there are some people that when they're faced with trauma and stress, they need to process it in a quieter, under-functioning way to start before they can, you know, sort of rise to that. If you're an over-functioner, you know, do you respond to stress and then you get frustrated with your under-functioning spouse, you know, at that time? And, you know, I think now what I find amazing about it is it's this opportunity for dialogue about it. It's an opportunity to know yourself better. Um, and then to have an actual conversation about it, if you can, to figure out what works. You know, my husband's like, just give me lists. I'll do anything you want me to do. But if you just tell me what to do. I was like, okay, cook the next 21 meals, you know, and stuff. So, you know, I mean, I think there's a lot of humor in it. But I also think, you know, for me, like everything that's been painful in this crisis has been an opportunity to grow a bit in terms of my relationship with him and how we divide the work and to make sure that we all feel like we have the support we need to get the get done what we need to do. I think in all these relationships, when you are in lockdown, you have this sort of, you know, it's almost like a Petri dish for like your relationship functioning. And, you know, there's a chance to experiment a little bit and there's a chance to try to do things a little bit differently. But overall, I would say, you know, coming out of it, I feel that, you know, closer to my family going through this together you know, whatever the challenges are, um, and there are many, we have this opportunity to know each other better and be connected around the challenges. And so to me, that's been the biggest silver lining. Teresa identifies as a female, a mom, and a teacher, and uses she, her pronouns. Teresa and her husband have a seven-year-old, a five-year-old, and a one-year-old, and she's teaching music remotely from home. It's been difficult as far as a teacher to figure out what activities the kids can actually handle. And so now my main concern with my students is that they are happy, healthy, their wellness comes first because a lot of them are struggling even in the academic classes. So my class is almost a second thought to them. And I just want them to check in to my class. I want them to check in with me. Even if I just see their face on the meets and they're not getting everything up to par or everything in, I just want to make sure that they're happy, that they're healthy, that they're not stressing over this because these are things that are well beyond our cons our control and everything that's going on. So their health and well-being is my main concern. I have had many epiphanies over this entire time with my children and my students um, as far as like what the amount of things I'm, I'm going to actually accomplish with them. My children tend to, in the middle of the week, fall apart. The weekend is a nice reset. So on the weekend, we're home, everyone's home, there's nothing to do, there's no no work needing to be done. If it's a nice day, we're outside all day. Comes Monday, it's back into the routine, and they're used to that sort of school time routine. Comes about Wednesday or Thursday, that's when emotions start getting a little bit more frazzled, and 
just sort of sense of ability and sense of control starts to give way. I, on a Wednesday, I'm going to probably take a break and do something different with the kids to break up the monotony of our schedule, just to give them a change and to kind of give them that mind reset. I've also noticed with my students, it's starting to get better, but at the very beginning of the whole remote learning, they were very overwhelmed. They couldn't finish their work. Things were said about how long they should be spending on it, but they were spending about three times as long as it as they are with it. And so now parents, if they're working from home, if there's two parents working from home or one parent's home, one parent's not, and the students need that extra help or extra guidance, it's very stressful, not only for the students, but for the parents as well, because now they're worried about work and then they have to worry with their child to, to make sure that they're getting their work done. And that's where I keep telling, like I've taken a look at all my work for the kids and we've slowly made it smaller and smaller for the kids and just said, you know, do what you can and, and just start from there. Control is a facade. <laughs> I've come to realize that whatever control I think I can set up, nope, it's someone else has another idea for me. <laughs> it's almost, you know, sometimes you have to laugh at the situation because if you don't, you're just going to end up in a curled up in a ball crying all day. So it's, you can either roll with the punches or, or then, or just, uh, you know, kind of lose your mind. Kristen identifies as a cisgender woman, a federal employee, and a city girl from Utah, and uses she, her pronouns. Kristen has a four-year-old, and she and her husband are working from home. Some days it feels like I work all the time, and some days are better than others. Uh, it just sort of depends. I'm pretty lucky that um, both my husband's management and my management all the way to the top um, are up to my assistant secretary are really understanding of this situation. Our agency lets us each take two hours a day of administrative time, especially to help deal with family issues. And it depends on the agency, of course. I've worked in a couple different federal agencies, but the current agency that I'm in, there definitely is sort of this I don't know, especially in, in Washington, this kind of pressure that like we work all the time. Our job is so important and what we do is so important to the government and to the functioning of the United States and to our policy that we have to work all the time. We have to be available all the time. We need to work all the time. And one of the big things that I sort of learned was just like that nobody, it's not any individual. It's not that individuals don't care, but that as a whole, the agency doesn't care about people. No agency does. That's that's not unique to the agency that I work for. No government corporation, off like they don't they don't care about individual people. That's just not how that works. And so policies aren't written for individual people. Policies are written for groups, right? And so you have to sort of be able to take out the individual aspect of it, of being like, oh, this is what the agency cares about me, or or my HR or HR will care about HR will help me fight this. They will not. They will not. The only person that will fight for you and for what you need is you. So if you need to take leave to deal with your family, if you need to take administrative time to deal with your life and with your family, you need to do that. And individuals in the, in the organization might, might scoff at that. They might look down at you. They might think that you're not as dedicated as an employee, or they might think that you're 
you know, some failing or weakness or something, right? Individuals might think that, but the organization as a whole, it doesn't care. But I do think there are people, especially people who are newer to the organizations, newer to the federal government in particular, women, minorities. I do think there's this sort of fear of if I take this, I'm somehow weak or I'm not dedicated. And and I think not dedicated is really the kicker. But I think there's a lot of people who come into the federal government, especially because it's such a pain to get your foot in. It's such a pain to get hired as a regular full-time employee in the federal government. It is just such a terrible process. I think there's a lot of people who really are concerned about that appearance. I want people to think I'm dedicated. I want people to think I'm hardworking and I don't want to do anything that jeopardizes that. But I think that COVID-19 has turned all of that on its head. So where you might've had office directors and supervisors who, who might've had those thoughts and who might've sort of been like, oh, you know, judgmental about people taking time off to deal with their family or medical issues or whatever. I think that's really shifted, especially as we've all been doing this for such a long time now. You know, even some office directors and some people that I've worked with who are normally, you know, really sort of, um, they're really intense. You know, they're like on a scale of one to 10, these speakers go to 11 for anybody who knows Spinal Tap. And I know a few people who are kind of like that. And, and it's been interesting watching them sort of devolve throughout this period of just like, oh, okay, now I, I, I have never been more grateful for my, my children's teachers. I have never been more grateful for the fact that my spouse goes to work somewhere else every day and I don't have to sit in the same room as them. Um, I get it now. And so I think the longer that this sort of telework situation stretches out for those of us with the option for administrative leave, I think the more higher ups and people who maybe previously would have potentially sort of turned their noses up at it, I think the more that it will become important to everybody agency-wide. And I really, really, really would say anybody who works in a federal agency that has the option for this administrative leave right now, especially right now during this pandemic crisis, take the leave. Just take it. Just take it. Please take the leave. Janelle identifies as a Black female, a Christian, and a single mom. Janelle works with foster children and is considered an essential worker. She has a five-year-old and has continued to go into work throughout the pandemic. I can say that the pandemic has forced me to evaluate all of the relationships that I and all the people that I am in connection with. Now, whether that's um, family, friends, church family, as a you know, with my son, um, even romantic relationships, it definitely has forced me to to see the things that need to be worked on within those relationships. And when I say romantic relationships, specifically dating, and that can be casual dating or exclusively dating, but there is no, again, no physical contact and no face-to-face. So again, you are forced to be creative in your interactions. You are forced to be intentional about your interactions because it's, you know, it's easy for for you to be face-to-face with someone and just have you know, interactions just just kind of flow from that. But when you're intentional about when I'm talking to this person, how am I going to talk to this person? How am I going to stay connected to this person since I can't physically see them? Then it does force you to think outside the box. And, and then it forces you to think about whether or not you want to spend <laughs> this time trying to figure out how to stay connected with this person. Do I want to stay connected to this person? Um, and again, that, that's not just romantic. That's that's any relationships. And do, and 
I think specifically for my church family, you know, we do, we absolutely miss that Sunday morning face-to-face hug, (laughs) just that in-person interaction. So the good thing that's come out of all of this is uh, reevaluating relationships. Carrie identifies as a working mother, a sober alcoholic, and a Midwesterner, and uses she, her pronouns. Carrie has a three-year-old, a five-year-old, and a seven-year-old, and she and her husband have both been working from home during this time. I prioritize my mental health, and I've learned to accept some things that I think maybe other moms don't or have difficulties accepting. Like, sometimes I have dirty floors, and that's just that's just the way it is. And I like to bake. So yesterday I didn't clean my floors and I made a berry pie and that made me feel really good. And so I feel really lucky that long before I had kids, I learned how to prioritize my mental health and my sanity. I think that's been hugely helpful during this time is knowing that really my, I I have to take care of myself because if I don't now more than ever, um, you know, things will start to fall apart for us. Staying away from a drink day to day is not a struggle at this point in my life. That's not to say it couldn't become a struggle again. I'm definitely a big believer that it's it's never cured. One of the great things I think to come out of COVID-19 is I think I will be able to remotely attend meetings that used to be a hugely beneficial part of my life. I have a lot of recovery friends that I'm not in constant touch with, but I, you know, I'm still in touch with them on Facebook and if at any moment and I have done this actually. I've I've called recovery friends at two or three in the morning. I have had uh really horrific panic attacks, hormone induced panic attacks after having my second and third babies. And I reached out to fellow moms in recovery and regardless of their beliefs, overall people in recovery are just angels in terms of being willing to reach out to other people in recovery and and be there when necessary. If I reached out to them and said, you know, I I want a drink, or if I reached out to them and said, you know, I'm really struggling, I, I think they would be there for me. I'm a member of a lot of, uh, or a few moms groups on social media, and they've been really helpful for me. They're good groups that don't tend to do a lot of the sort of judging and and shaming that are in some moms groups. One thing I notice or have noticed over the years repeatedly is a pressure from working moms mostly on themselves to be nice and to be polite. And I've heard over and over and over about the ways that moms are really suffering because their partners, in pretty much all cases, men, are not holding up their end of the bargain, really. I I hear this all the time. And there's so much pressure from moms on themselves and oftentimes from other moms to sort of quietly, quietly compensate for their partners and their homes with their children and and in their homes. And I think because my life has been so different than, and I've had to be such a fighter for myself 
to to live with that is just unacceptable to me. And I think that there's a sense among women, among working moms, that you can't stand up for yourself in a way that's constructive. In the moms groups that I'm a part of on social media, I see the anger, just this really pervasive, justified anger. But for me, my energy is much better spent on resolving those issues than on cleaning a floor that my partner won't clean, for example. I, I choose to put my energy into, into fixing the inequity, into dealing with the inequality in our house than I do on taking care of our house. So I will say it has been really, really helpful for me over the years to learn how to address issues in a way that is constructive. In the past, I just did not know how to do that, and I wasted a lot of time, and uh, I think I did some damage because I, I didn't know how, how to deal with things constructively. That doesn't mean that I will let things go. We have, I think, one of the most equal partnerships I've seen in terms of the house and the children, and that is because of me. <laughs> and because of the work that I've done. And some part of it is because my husband is willing to change, but it does take a lot of time. Sarah is an American expat living in India, and in this context identifies as a Jewish mother and uses she, her pronouns. Sarah has a 19-year-old and a 15-year-old who are currently in the States, and she and her husband are working in lockdown in India. What's happened to us over the last basically eight weeks all of this has come to a head is the realization that suddenly we're not in a position to just get on a plane and go to the States if our kids need need us. Um, India is completely locked down. There are no flights going out other than flights that are repatriation flights, so official repatriation flights. There are no flights at all coming in to India which means that our children can't come be with us, which had been our intention for them to be here once they finish the school year. And so our family is faced with this very bizarre situation where we just have no idea when we'll all be together again. And I never expected to be in this position. I, as it was, had been very ambivalent about being an early empty nester and now, uh, you know, the fact that my chicks are 8,000 miles away and I have no way to, to know when I'm going to see them again and when we'll be able to be, you know, the four of us together again. I just, that's, that's been a real challenge for me. And it's interesting because, you know, I see a lot of my close friends and colleagues that are dealing almost with the flip side of that. They have younger children or teenagers or even college-age kids that are at home and locked in their houses with them and all of the challenges and frustrations that that brings. Um, and to be honest, I find myself jealous of them, which again, is I never imagined myself being jealous of people being locked in their house with their children. <laughs> 
decided that we didn't want our children to go be with their grandparents because we were worried about the health of their grandparents who are much older. Um, They're all in a category that we would really be concerned about them getting sick. And so as things started to close down, my kids kind of ended up with friends. So my daughter ended up with her best friend and his family. And my son ended up with his girlfriend and her family. And they are just the most generous, kind people that they've taken in our kids and are feeding them and letting them use toilet paper and, you know, all the resources in their homes. Yeah, these incredible families have just taken it upon themselves to, to take care of, of, of our kids. And I'm, and I'm incredibly grateful. I don't know that we're in a unique situation. I suspect that there are a lot of families that for whatever reason, their older or adult children are not able to live with them, of, you know, not least of which there are so many Americans living abroad the way we are. And it has made me think a lot about times in history when people have been forced to rely on help and kindness and generosity in a way that they never thought that they would have to. And in some ways, how hard that is to do, to ask for help um, from people that you only, you know, kind of know and have gotten to know a lot better under the circumstances. And then equally how heartening it is, how, um, how it just, you know, brings back your faith in humanity that people would be willing to accept your children in that way and take them in and take care of them in that way. One of the thoughts I had as Mother's Day is coming up that is that I'm going to send flowers to my kids' pandemic moms. Um, and this makes me a little emotional. They've taken on being physically there for my kids at a time that I couldn't be. And, uh, and that's really meaningful to me. Trini identifies as a strong Latina woman and uses she, her pronouns. Trini has a 10-month-old and a 2-year-old, and she and her husband are working from home during this time. Our, our working days right now, they don't really have like a clear sense of beginning and working. I mean, you know, working for our jobs. We're lucky that we're, we're both of us, we still have our jobs. For some reason, now our workload seems bigger and more intense than it was before. And it's sort of like an endless circle. You know, we were talking yesterday that this like 14 hour working days, it's, you know, or sometimes like even longer, we just can't really keep going on, on that end. Take shifts uh, based on our, if we have meetings, if we have, uh, if we have any deadlines, like reports and stuff, we just work on those at night. So that means that sometimes we either don't go to bed at all. And then one of us, then they takes the, you know, the morning shift with the kids. So one of us can catch up on our, our sleep. So it's becoming a little bit uh, physically and mentally exhausting, but I am lucky that, that my partner, he has a positive mindset. So he always says that, you know, we're lucky that we're never going to have the chance to see, you know, this two little like goofballs, as he call as he calls him, like seeing them growth and 
and be happy every day. We forget how adaptable children are to any situation. So we're learning actually from our children to adapt to the circumstances. They're too little to kind of like understand what's going on. My daughter knows that there is a, a virus happening outside. But, you know, for her, it's, she, you know, she doesn't understand exactly what that means. And so that has made, I think, the heavy burden that we have a little bit better. We're all under the same storm, but in different boats. It's so important for you to be aware and be empathetic about how we're all taking this differently. I think it's like important that that we take this time to, you know, how is it that we want to come out out of this? It's not just like, you know, it, it actually stresses me out to think that they just want to open the country because of the economy. I mean, economically speaking, as far as I know, there's a lot of things happening in the house. We're cooking, <laughs> we're doing stuff. And so, you know, there's like home economics <laughs> that is happening for sure. something that has that has put like a lot of stress in in me it's just to think that that our own individualistic ideas or beliefs can matter more than like than the well-being of all and you know from from my foreigner perspective i have always said that Maybe this has something to do a little bit with the idea of the American dream in the sense that it was always focused on you as an individual. If you work hard, if you do this, if you do that, you're going to accomplish this. But he never spoke about if you work hard because others gave you the chance, if you work hard because like, you know, you had a good a uh, place where you were able to work, if you had a good mentor, if you had like a community that actually helped you contribute to your accomplishments. When I hear like the news and when I hear the policies that are being drafted and, you know, in the relief packages, etc., I just feel, I just see this like individualism that is so hurtful for us as a, as a community. And this this is going to affect all of us. So why why some of us should matter more than others? Lizzie identifies as a queer disabled woman and uses she, her pronouns. Lizzie has a six-year-old and she and her wife are working from home in Scotland. I would probably mostly describe myself as a queer disabled woman. I think it's interesting from a, a couple of points of view. Obviously, because I'm struggling with my mobility, I, I'm not allowed to go anywhere. <laughs> so in a way, it kind of, it, it makes my daily struggles kind of almost less because I don't have to go to the shop. I don't have to try and commute into work at all or feel like I'm failing to commute into work. Before this, I did work from home quite a lot. What I found, though, is that I would be working from home within an environment where everybody else was not working from home. So if I was wanting to go to a meeting, I would be Skyped into the meeting, but I would be the one sitting on a wee screen in the corner 
and people would you know best people in the world sometimes forget about me or I couldn't just really naturally join in necessarily a meeting in quite the same way what I'm finding now that everyone is working from home and everyone is sitting in a meeting on teams or it's kind of almost a, a little bit equalizing I'm seeing this from quite a lot of disabled people and uh, kind of a mix partly some anger at you know I've been asking to be able to work from home and to be able to have these adjustments for a long time and people that have been sort of made to feel like that is a big ask and and sort of a big favor if they're allowed to and a huge inconvenience and suddenly like well because everyone has to do it oh it's fine we can do it so there's I'm seeing some frustration but also some like hey welcome to the club we know what to do here we know how you know we can suddenly the fonts of wisdom because we've been doing the working from home and and trying to work across screens and and navigate kind of being in your own home when you're working and the issues that you know it's got positives and negatives around that um you know suddenly suddenly the experts in it which is interesting how amazing people can be and how creative people can be and how in a situation like this, something quite small can really have a big effect on people. Like we've got um, our house is quite a big house and it's onto a public footpath where you get a lot of people going past. So we've got this notice board where we've been putting up things like, you know, here is the local groups of where to go to if you need help and, you know, information like that. But we've also got this joke of the day, which I put up just to be really silly. But the amount of people that have either, you know, if we've been outside in the front garden, have kind of stopped to say to us, or have kind of sent a message on Facebook or this kind of thing, oh my goodness, I come by every day and I read your joke. And especially some people who are very isolated and they're allowed out once a day on an exercise and they say, come by and I read the joke. And they're like, they're terrible jokes. It's not that it's high art or hugely creative and like people are doing much more amazing things, but just something like that is very, you know, connects people. Um, and my daughter's birthday at the weekend, I, I'd been worried because I kind of knew that, right, it's going to be under lockdown. It's going to be a bit of a strain. You know, when we can't have a party, we can't have a friends over. What are we going to do? Is it going to be weird? She told me it was the best birthday ever. And I think a lot of that is because people did make that little extra effort. So a friend of hers had uh, made a video um, in his back garden where he'd like hidden some superheroes and like made a video of it and sent it. And so he like is like a game for you to play for your birthday. You know, other people sort of passed by because they knew they could pass by a house and kind of just wave at least and kind of be there. And and it, it made all these kind of very small things that people had done just to try and connect. It me- meant that she had absolutely an amazing day. I think what we're seeing, certainly in Scotland, is people sort of coming around to the idea that the world is is changing in a sort of a more permanent kind of way, and I think you know when lockdown first happened, there was a idea that oh it'll be three weeks of you know things being a bit weird, and then it'll go back to normal. But the idea that in another six months the world will look like it did six months ago, I think people are certainly people within my bubble are starting to kind of realise that that's not the case, and that's in good ways and in bad ways. Or oh, I hope that we will get some 
positive long-term changes in terms of community, in terms of environment, um, in terms of the way that people work, particularly with family. And I'm going to steal this from a friend of mine that I, that I saw saying this on Twitter was what she had loved. It's normal now to work from home with children. And if you're in a meeting and your children walk into the room, people are like, oh, oh, yeah, it's your kids. And they'll like say hello. And you'll be like, oh, hold on just a second. You know, yeah, go and get a biscuit or whatever it is. And it, there's not like, oh, your children are home. You know, why aren't you having your children cared for? Um, why aren't you, you know, ignoring that you actually have a life? Um, but actually, you know, people are there. They're still doing their job. They're very professional. But they're human beings as well. And, you know, that's true of um parents and it's true of all kinds of you know different different uh, walks of life and, and kinds of people well, certainly what i would love to see is a long-term accepting of that and and making more flexible of, of the way that working lives work i want to thank all the women who contributed to this episode and the many others who spoke to me as i put this together i'm grateful for their candor and insights around how people are finding their way I hope you'll join me next week for part two, and that you will join me in July as I launch my new podcast, Timestamp, which will be devoted to authentic conversations capturing this moment in time. You've been listening to Your Own Voice, the podcast about gender experience and perspective. Your Own Voice is produced by me, Amy Breslow, with IT support from Alex Moreno, and is registered with ProtectRight. Music by Kevin McLeod. If you have comments or questions that you'd like addressed on the show, please submit them on the website, yourownvoice.org contact. Thank you for joining me today. I'll be back in one week with the final episode of the Your Own Voice podcast. Until then, take care and be well. <laughs>